We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, get over to Ephesians 5 verses 22 to 33, the great marriage section of the book of Ephesians. And uh, if you are married, of course, you know that it doesn't take very long to find that you and your spouse don't see everything from the same perspective. That uh, you look, so to speak, often from a different set of lenses. Uh, One area in which my own wife and I don't always see eye to eye. I'm going to share just one small one with you this morning. It involves uh, this box. Now, some of you see this and and you immediately know what this is. Others of you do not. Uh, This is a box in which I have kept all of the cables and electronic components that I'm not currently using, but that I'm confident I will one day need to use. Right, this box is going to come in handy. It already has, but it's going to come in really handy. Like if there is some sort of apocalypse and we have to all go back to having home phones. I've got several old phone cords in there. Uh, if iPhone goes backwards and they need us to use the old style chargers, I've got some of those in there. I have power cables. I've got all kinds of stuff in there. Uh, probably once or twice a year, I use something from this box and I make sure that Shannon knows I'm using something from the box. I come in the house uh, and I announce it. I'm using something from the box, right? The reason is because uh, her theory is you're not using this stuff. Let's get rid of it. In fact, it used to be a much bigger box. Uh, And over the years, she purchased that blue tub, which was intended to be an organizational type of system. You can see my organizational system with these wires. And uh, the, the box used to be in the garage. Now it has moved to the shed in the backyard. It keeps moving further from her line of vision because uh, we have this tension surrounding the box because my theory is we may need it. Hers is, not, you're not using it. You don't need it. And I thought, okay, that's a good principle, right? If you're not using it, let's get rid of it. So this week I went to our kitchen and just kind of rooted around in some of the drawers. And uh, I found a couple of things that I don't think we've ever used. Like, uh, this is a giant cheese grater. Like, I, I can't emphasize, I think it's about six inches this way and maybe four and a half this way. I mean, it's big. And I was like, we have never grated like 50 cubic feet of cheese in my house. Like, in the entire time we've been married, we've never pulled that out. There was also uh, this. Now, some of you know what this is. Some of you don't. I had to look it up on the internet. I asked a coworker. She didn't know. This is a potato masher. Now, the reason I didn't know is because in the course of our marriage, I think we've had mashed potatoes, like, once, maybe. We don't use it, right? So I'm like, if the standard is, hey, we're not using it, let's throw it away. There's a lot of stuff. Not just, not just my wires, right? There's a lot of stuff that we ought to get rid of. Now, that's just a small illustration. And obviously, that's one that we can laugh off, right? It's not a huge deal. I can live with having few wires. She could probably live with having less kitchen stuff, right? And so we laugh at it. But the reality is that in marriage, often we have these differences of opinion, these different ways in which we see the world, and and they can get more serious than that. Right, so uh, when I was in premar- when we were in premarital counseling almost 18 years ago, now we'll, it'll be 18 years in January. I remember them saying uh, that, that early on, the things you're probably going to fight about are going to be your in-laws, intimacy, and money. Right, and those who have been married for a long time, you probably are sitting there going, "Yeah, we have argued about all those things many times, right? More than once." And then you add kids to the equation, and that introduces a whole other universe of things that you can argue about. And fight about, right? So while marriage can be joyful because of the differences between us, it can also be challenging, right? And if we're not careful, those differences of opinion can lead us into bitterness, 
against our spouse, anger against our spouse, and a sort of cynicism that ultimately can lead to the dissolution of marriages. As you look at the statistics on a national level, roughly one-third of those who have been married are divorced, right? So roughly one in three are the divorce statistics, right? And many of us have seen that played out in our own families, and our own communities, where a husband and wife, right, just cannot seem to reconcile. And you see that tragedy of divorce. Now we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about uh, that as we move forward this morning. Right? But the reality is that marriage can be both joyful and challenging. But there's no doubt as you read the Bible that marriage is something that God created for a good reason. He created it to reflect him. You don't even get two chapters into the Bible before marriage is introduced. Right after creation, you have male and female as as sort of the crowning step in God's creation. Male and female created in the image of God. And then chapter two is almost all about this relationship between husband and wife, between Adam and Eve. Right? And, and Eve is made from the side of Adam to be his azer, his helper. Right? And that's a term that is often used for this person who kind of has your back. Right? So husband and wife together worship and follow God and they have each other's back. Right? So this is an extremely significant relationship. For most of us, other than our relationship with Jesus Christ, it will be the most significant relationship in our lives. And it's something God created for a purpose, right? And so marriages work best when they are centered around the principles of the scripture. I ran across a couple other statistics this, more, uh, this week. Uh, 53% of those in very happy marriages would say that God is at the center of our relationship compared with 7% of those who are in unhappy or struggling marriages, right? So 53% of those who say, I'm very happy, the majority would say God's at the center of our relationship. Only 7% of those who are unhappy would say the same. In other words, there's a marked difference. Those in general who say we're going to center our marriage around the principles of Scripture, generally their marriages thrive. And now it's not a 100% correlation because there are two people in a marriage, right? You can't always control what your spouse does, but in general, that's the case. Uh, I also read that Protestant Christians who attend church services regularly, that is two to three times a month at least, Protestant Christians who attend church regularly have a divorce rate that is 35% lower than those who have no religious affiliation at all. All right, it's clear that the way God designed marriage, it functions best when we center it around Jesus. All right, Paul knew that when he wrote Ephesians 5. And if you've been following with us through Ephesians, you know that at chapters 4 through 6, Paul has been laying out all these implications of what does it mean that now Jesus died for us, Jesus rose again, we're reconciled to God, the Spirit of God lives in us and among us. And Paul's going to say, how does that affect your worship? How does that affect your relationships? How does that affect your prayer life? How does that affect all of these different areas of your life? And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that sort of relational aspect of following the Spirit that we will be loving one another and being kind to one another and speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that there's this unity in the body of Christ that flows from knowing Jesus. Right, but this week now, what Paul's going to do is he really drills down into our most significant and closest relationship, which is the marriage relationship. He's also going to deal with uh, parent-child relationships. We'll see that 
next week, right? Because here's the deal. The reality is that we come in here about once a week. Most of us see each other once a week. And so it's easy enough to be really nice and polite and loving to one another once a week. We dress up really nice, we smile at each other, we shake hands, we sing together, and then we go home, and it's really not that difficult to really be nice and kind to people you only see once a week. But the challenge is, your spouse goes home with you when you leave. And they see the parts of you that you don't show when you come on Sunday morning. And so what Paul is going to say is this, that the way you treat your spouse is a huge indicator of the health of your relationship with Jesus. The way you treat your spouse is a huge indicator of the health of your relationship with Jesus. You cannot honestly say, I am walking closely with Jesus Christ if you're angry and disrespectful and sarcastic and unkind and unloving to your spouse. And so this passage for everybody who is married is going to be deeply convicting. Before we dive into Ephesians 5, I want to make a couple of other comments. All right? The first is this. I recognize that in this room, there are probably three categories of people. There are people who have never been married before. Maybe you are uh, younger in life and aren't yet married. Maybe you are a little bit older and are not yet married. Maybe you'll get married one day. Maybe you will not get married. And it's easy to approach a passage like Ephesians 5 and think, this doesn't apply to me, right? I'm not married. I'll just come back next week. Here's what I would say. Two things. One, you might get married one day. And Ephesians chapter 5 actually, I think, provides some insight into the sort of person you want to marry, right? Because again, Paul is going to say that marriages thrive when both partners are actively seeking to reflect the love and the relationship between the church and Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That that impacts the type of person you marry. You want to marry a person who's walking with Jesus. It also provides a window into how you can pray for your married friends, the types of struggles and challenges they may have. All right, the second category may be those you were once married and you're not married anymore. Maybe you uh, have experienced a divorce for one reason or another. And the temptation may be to say, you know, I, I feel a lot of shame when I read a passage like Ephesians 5. I think the message, the overarching message of the book of Ephesians, again, is the grace of God. That every day is a new day and a new opportunity to worship him. So you are able to please and worship Jesus through the power of the Spirit, whether you're married now or not. And whether you're married now or not, you can pray for and support and encourage those in the congregation who are. And then, of course, the third category, which is probably the majority in our congregation, are those who are currently married. And and as we walk through Ephesians 5, the overarching concept of Ephesians chapter 5 is this. Your marriage is meant to reflect Christ's relationship with the church. That your marriage may be, and probably is, the most visible, tangible demonstration the world is going to see of the relationship between Jesus Christ and and his church. Your marriage has the opportunity to actually preach the gospel in the way you treat your spouse. Okay, the second note that I want to make before we dive in. If you read recent books, particularly in the last half century, on this passage and on this topic, you're going to run across two primary perspectives on Ephesians chapter 5. One would be called the egalitarian perspective on Ephesians 5. Egalitarian comes, of course, from the word equal. And the idea would be that uh, while certain principles in this passage still hold, 
the concept of any sort of authority structure in the marriage relationship was really culturally bound primarily. In other words, when Paul talks about wives submitting to husbands and husbands loving their wives and those distinct roles that that bear sort of marks of authority, that is confined really to the culture in which Paul was writing in a day and age in which women were generally less educated, generally less economically empowered, and and Paul, in a sense, is preserving the social order of the day and then pushing people to go further. I'd say this. There is a lot of truth in that perspective as we read the passage, right? And there are a lot of very godly men and women who hold that perspective, right? The second perspective is called complementarianism. And complementarianism would say, complementarianism with an, with an E, not to give someone a compliment, but to be compliments to one another, right? Complementarianism essentially would say you have husband and wife, at least most of them would say husband and wife are equal before God, equally made in the image of God, but that marriage does have an authority structure of sorts within it, an authority structure that goes back to the Garden of Eden goes back to creation where you see Eve created out of Adam's side to be her helper and then Adam names his wife. He names her woman because she is created out of man. There's a little bit of, of a hint of authority in naming, right? And then the other aspect would be that Adam is the one first and primarily held accountable for the sin of his marriage and for the sin that they commit in the garden. So the complementarian perspective would say, look, men and women are made equally in the image of God, redeemed equally before Jesus Christ. But in this particular relationship, there is an authority structure. Now, we're going to talk about that a little as we move forward. I happen to hold a complementarian position on this passage. I recognize that there are probably some in here who do not hold a complementarian position on this passage. That's okay. Right? It's okay in the sense that our doctrinal statement doesn't lay that out. But I hold this complementarian position on the passage. But I think as we walk through it, what you're going to find, wherever you land on that question, most of what I say this morning is going to apply to you. Right? Most of what I say this morning is going to impact how you treat your spouse. And, and, and keep in mind, again, the big idea, your marriage is meant to reflect the relationship of Jesus with the church. All right, now I want to dive into the passage. There are two primary sections of this passage. The first really begins in verse 21, and the idea is wives respect, or Paul uses the word submit to. He actually uses both in this passage. Wives respect your husbands. Now, I read that. Uh, let me read the passage for us, and then I've, I've got a couple of comments to begin. Okay, verse 21, Paul begins, be subject to one another... In the fear of Christ, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Now, as a male in 2017, I realized that standing and reading a passage about wives submitting to husbands, I may be taking my life in my hands. Uh, I was watching several years ago, one of my favorite old TV show, old-ish TV shows, 10 or 12 years old, was The West Wing. And there's a classic scene in the West Wing where the president, President Bartlett, and his wife, Abby, are discussing the homily. They're a Catholic couple. They're discussing the homily that they heard at church that day. And the homily happens to have been about Ephesians 5. I want to show you just a little clip from that scene before we move forward. 
It was a perfectly lovely homily on Ephesians 5.21. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Yeah, she's skipping over the part that says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. I do skip over that part. Why? Because it's stupid. Okay. All right. That may be how you feel when you read a passage like this, right? It rubs against the grain of what we think a marriage ought to be. Now, as we walk through, here's what I want to say. When we talk about submission, a couple of things to keep in mind. One is that this portion of the passage would have been the least controversial in the first century. Okay, it actually would have been taken for granted that wives were to be subject to their husbands. That's one of the reasons this is such a shorter portion of the passage. Okay, so, so we want to keep that in mind. Secondly, I think often we have a misunderstanding of exactly what Paul is saying. I want to make a few notes, and some of these notes here are going to be, what is submission not as we talk about it moving forward? Okay, the first thing I want to point out, though, is this. The command to submission in this passage actually is found first in, chap- in verse 21. All right, it's not in verse 22. The actual verb in the Greek language to submit begins in verse 21. And what does Paul say? Submit to one another in the fear of Christ, right? Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Here's what Paul is going to get at as you walk through this passage. The submission of wife to husband in this marriage relationship is really just an overflow of what every single one of us ought to be doing anyway. Okay, he's going to say, in the body of Christ, you be subject to one another. My goal and your goal, male, female, husband, wife, whatever, our goal is to look at those we're worshiping with, look at those that we are serving Jesus with, and say, how can I be subject to you? How can I set aside my rights in the pattern of Jesus Christ in order to serve and submit to you, right? That first and foremost, I say, I don't want it to be about my desires and what I want selfishly but about the flourishing of the body of Christ, and in this context, the flourishing of my marriage under the headship of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, for all of us, all of us submit. All of us have authority structures in our lives. And so verse 21, he's going to say, Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, wives to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Let me make a few other comments about this passage. First one is this, that submission does not mean inferiority. Okay, that's not what Paul means by this. In other words, by inferiority, Paul is not saying there's sort of an ontological difference between male and female where women are somehow lesser than in any respect. All right, and the reason we know that, again, go back to the Garden of Eden. When man and woman are created, he created male and female in the image of God. Male and female both stand before God equal in the sense that we both are made in God's image. In salvation and in walking with Jesus Christ, male and female, husband and wife, stand before Jesus equally in need of redemption and equally able to take advantage of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is talking about, I believe, in Galatians 3, when he says there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Right? He's not literally saying those categories do not exist, but instead he is saying that before Jesus Christ, all of us have equal access to God. Right? All of us are under authority. As a pastor at this church, I'm under the authority of our elder board. All right? So they can tell me what to do and what not to do as a leader in this church. 
right? But I'm not inferior in a ontological sense, in a substantive sense to any man on our elder board, right? So submission does not mean inferiority. An authority structure does not mean that I am inferior to another person, all right? Secondly, submission is not the husband's concern, okay? In other words, this is really, really critical. I think we need to dig into this for a minute. Nowhere does the passage say, husbands, make your wives submit, okay? Husbands, if you try that, you really are taking your life into your own hands, Nowhere, in fact, does the passage even say husbands take charge of your wives or husbands lead your wives. We're going to see that in a minute. The command to the husbands is actually to love as Christ loves the church. Submission is not the husband's concern. Paul never gives any command to the husband to say, make sure she submits. Instead, and this would have been relatively surprising to those reading this in the first century, Paul's command is actually to the wife. Wives, you make a choice as an overflow of your relationship with Jesus Christ, right? To to follow the lead of your husband as, as he takes the authority and responsibility to do what? To provide for the family and to ensure the flourishing of the family physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Here's where Paul's gonna go also, and we'll talk about this. When he says the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, to be the head does not mean the same thing as always being in charge or always getting your way or everybody has to do what you say. That's not what headship is. Instead, what headship means in this passage, and we'll see it, is that the husband bears the lion's share of accountability and responsibility before God for the flourishing of his wife and family. All right, so submission is not the husband's concern. To love is the husband's concern. We'll get there in just a moment. Thirdly, submission is not absolute, not by any means. And here's what I mean. One's allegiance to God always trumps one's allegiance to one's spouse. Your allegiance to God always trumps your allegiance to your spouse. So think about Acts 5 for just a moment. This is a great illustration. You have a married couple, Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias the husband, Sapphira the wife. They sell a piece of property and they bring some of the money to the apostles. And what do they do? Well, Ananias comes in and he lies about how much money they sold the property for. He gives a portion of it and he says it's all of it, right? And Peter, through the Holy Spirit, knows that Ananias is lying, knows that Ananias is doing something deceitful and Ananias dies, right? He drops dead. A couple hours later, Sapphira, his wife, comes in. Peter asks her, hey, is this how much money you got? She says, yeah, absolutely, right? She lies, Because she and her husband hatched a plan, probably in that day because her husband told her to. And what happens? She's held accountable for the sin. Because submission is never absolute. Submission never participates in sin against God. And submission never participates in abuse. It doesn't enable abuse because abuse is sin against God. Right? And so when we talk about submission, again, submission is not a license for your husband to do whatever he pleases, even if it harms you or the family. Absolutely not. Submission is never absolute when it refers to immorality or abuse. Instead, as we look at Ephesians 5, the responsibility of the wife in that sort of a situation would, would be to expose it. To shine a light on that sin. And that may look like calling the authorities. That might look like church discipline. Okay, one's allegiance to God always trumps the allegiance to spouse. Okay, next, submission is confined in this context to marriage. The the command is not women submit to men. 
Okay? The command is wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. There, there's a tightly defined order and sphere of authority in the passage. All right, and then lastly, submission is ultimately to Jesus. When I follow the authorities in my life, I am ulti- ultimately following the authority of Jesus. All right, again, here's what I want to say. So what, what is it? What is Paul talking about? Fundamentally, I think what Paul is saying here is this, that wives, you, you have a responsibility ultimately before God to do everything in your power to enable your husband to lead this family toward spiritual, physical, emotional, and mental flourishing. In other words, to provide an environment where he can serve and love the family as Christ loves the church, right? That's ultimately what Paul is, I believe, talking about, is to recognize that authority that he's going to have before God, that he will bear that lion's share of responsibility. Okay, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. So practically speaking, then, what, what would that look like? Let me offer a few things, and some of these are going to carry over to the husband as well. The first one is this, pray for him. Okay, pray for him. I was talking last night to my wife, and she mentioned the book, The Power of a Praying wife, right? And she said, it's a great book. There's one for husbands as well. Uh, And here's, here's what I'm getting at. Husband and wife, I'm going to say this to both. Before you say anything about how he needs to change, get on your knees and pray that God would work in his heart, that he would serve Jesus. And as he serves Jesus, the family would begin to serve Jesus with him. Be on your knees for your husband day and night, week after week, year after year, pray for him. That really is one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful things that you can do for your family and for your husband. Be in constant prayer. Okay, secondly, give him some room to initiate, okay? Give him some room to initiate. What I mean is this. If he enters into the the house, whether that's at the end of the day or whenever it is, and every decision has already been made and there is no room for his voice, then eventually he will stop speaking most likely. So give him some room. I was reading the book Love and Respect a little bit uh, this week, and the author talks about a conference he did in which there were men and women in the conference, and they kind of talked about what do you want for your marriage? And there was a young engaged woman who said this, I want him to be the head. I want him to be the leader. I just want to make sure he makes decisions in keeping with what I want. Now, all of us feel that way. All of us feel that way when we're placed in any kind of authority structure. And here's the key. None of us have a right in an authority structure for decisions to be made in keeping with what we want, right? We don't have a right to it. Now, we certainly can express what we desire, okay? What Paul is going to say to the husbands, husbands, is that your your, your wives do have a right to expect that you will lead toward what is for her best, Right? But none of us are going to get all the time what we desire. And so here's, here's what I think uh, this passage would lead wives toward is give him some space to initiate. Right? And, and it may be that you provide opportunities even for him to do that in the home. I actually, between services, was thinking about this. Um, a few years ago, my wife purchased a fun devotional for the kids that we read sometimes. And she said, would you mind, could we read this some uh, at breakfast time, right? So she, she went and got it. She showed it to me. I was like, that's great. Let's do it. And I read it and, and I look like a hero, okay, who's leading. 
right? But the reality is, what has she done? She simply provided an environment for the flourishing of the family and then said, would you step forward? So give him some room to initiate and then encourage, okay? Encourage, encourage, encourage. I'm going to say this to the men in a moment too, but a hundred times before you criticize, encourage, encourage, encourage. And this is making the assumption that he is making a good faith effort to move forward to pursue Jesus Christ, right? So it may be he comes home and he says, look, I would like to try to do a devotional at dinner time." And you go, that's great. And he says, I have chosen the Veggie Tales devotional. And you go, oh no, right? I can't handle that tomato and cucumber all year long. Like I just can't, I can't do it for an entire 365 days of Bob the tomato giving me spiritual insights, right? And so you begin to churn on that. You've got a couple of options at this point. You can go and you can say, no, 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 no. We're doing focus on the family, please, please, right? Or you can ask a question like, what is the bigger overarching issue here? Is it possible to encourage while also eventually saying, hey, could we try a different direction? How important is it which one you do? If he's making a good faith effort. So maybe what it is you say, you know what? I'm so grateful, so glad that you're stepping forward to help us walk with Jesus better. Please keep doing that. Please keep doing that. And then maybe for the next year, you do veggie tales and you grit your teeth. And then September, October next year comes in and maybe you say, you know what? I, I saw another devotional. Maybe let's consider, maybe could we consider not doing round two of veggie tales? Let's do focus on the family. Right? But encourage a hundred times before criticizing and always ask the question in the grand scheme of eternity, what matters? What matters? That we provide that space. Okay, so now we're going to round the corner and go to the second part of the passage. Okay, verses 25 to 33. Husbands, love your wives. Let me read this passage and then make some comments. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. All right, so a couple of comments. First of all, uh, Paul writes 41 words to wives and he writes, uh, I believe it's 116 words to the husbands. All right, the, the passage to husbands is much longer. And I believe there's a couple of reasons for this. One is, as we said before, because I do believe he's going to bear the lion's share of accountability when he stands before Jesus Christ to ask the question, did you move your family toward the pursuit of Jesus Christ? Did you provide an environment of love? Did you provide an environment where you were trying to reflect Jesus Christ? He'll bear that lion's share of the accountability. But I think there's another reason this passage is longer. Okay, And the reason is this, as I mentioned before. 
Nothing would have been controversial when Paul was writing about wives submitting to their husbands. Nothing, right? We read that section of the passage, and that's the part that's controversial to us. In the first century, it's this second part that would have been deeply troubling to the men of Paul's age, right? The reason is this. When he uses words like headship, what what we have to understand is to be the head of something in first century Rome or Greece meant that you had absolute authority to do as you please with no real consideration for how that affected another person, right? So Nero, Caesar Nero is called the head of the Roman Empire. And there was a writer named Seneca in the first century who wrote around the time of Nero. And one of the things he talks about is Nero as the head. That is that word kephale. And as the head, as the guy who's in charge, you know what everybody else is supposed to do? Every other member of the body is supposed to be willing to die for the head. Right? Because Nero is the beloved head. Everybody else will give up their lives for the head. Now, what does Paul do? He absolutely takes that and goes and flips it upside down. And he, in fact, will say it is the responsibility of the head to die for the rest of the body. Right? And the analogy that he uses is how Christ gave himself up for the church. He handed himself over. That is a reference to the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And he's going to say, why did he do it? So that he could present the church to Jesus Christ in all of her glory. Jesus died for his people so that we could be like him and we could know God. And so what Paul is going to say is this, men, you want to be in charge? You want to be the head? What does it mean to be the head? You're the first one to die. You want to be the head, you're the first one to die to self. You want to be the head day after day after day, and you die to self, right? Headship in this context means self-sacrifice. It means that I set aside what I would want in my flesh to provide an environment for the flourishing and growth of my family. Headship means self-sacrifice, just as Jesus delivered himself up for us. All right, that's absolutely what Paul does with this idea of headship. He says, no, your, your responsibility is not to make her submit. Your responsibility is not to lord your authority over the family. Instead, your responsibility is to constantly set down your desires for the sake of your wife. And wake up again tomorrow and you set down your desires for the sake of your wife. And and as I have served here over the years, I've seen uh, that often deep marital conflict and division begins with a breakdown right here. Because here's what happens. It can happen with both parties, but I do think often it begins with a husband who begins to think that I am owed certain behavior from my wife. And over the years, he begins to say, you know what? She doesn't do what I want her to do. She doesn't meet my needs. And this sort of selfish bitterness begins to take root in his heart to the point where he can convince himself that he's got to have his needs met outside of this marriage. And he leaves or commits adultery or moves outside in some other direction and breaks the whole thing down. Now, again, women do this as well. But I found that often it starts right here with a husband who refuses 
to take seriously, that headship means self-sacrifice, that for both partners in a marriage, there will be moments over a long marriage for most people where they will go, you know what, it would be easier just to hit eject. But you stay because we are called to reflect the self-sacrificial love of Jesus. One of the uh, couples in the video earlier said it, marriage is not about making us happy. And boy, what a, what a great lie our culture has told us. But it's about making us holy, right? What does our culture tell us? Well, you can't really love somebody until you reach your full potential by loving yourself to the greatest degree. Right? What a bunch of hooey. The reality is that Paul would say, no, you set aside your desires for your wife. Headship means self-sacrifice. Paul's going to go on and he's going to say this, um, that husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. In other words, how do you treat your body, right? What does it look like to take care of your body? Well, when you are Hungry, you eat. When you're thirsty, you get a drink. When you need something, you try to find it for yourself. What does Paul say? In order to take care of one's wife, you treat her with the same care and love you would treat your own body. I was thinking this week how when we were first married, I, I sometimes struggled with it. I still sometimes struggle with this. Right? But one specific illustration that highlighted this was uh, quite often... Right around bedtime, I will get a glass of water. I'll pour myself a glass of water from a water jug in the fridge, and then I'll either put it by my bedside table or I drink it before I go to bed. And what would happen sometimes is I would pour a glass of water in the kitchen, and then I would close that jug of water, and I would reach to put it back up in the fridge, and just as I was closing the fridge, I'd hear Shannon from the other room, could you get me a glass of water too? Right, and uh, I always had that moment where I thought, was she waiting there for me to do this for hours in the other room until I got up and then she wanted a glass of water, right? Was this a plan, right? Yeah, so that there was this darkness in my heart. And did she not hear the water begin to tinkle into the glass and the screwing of the lid and the opening of the fridge? Why at that moment, right? So we actually had arguments about this. And here's why, because I was selfish, because I, I, I couldn't pull back and simply think, what does it cost me to pour her a drink of water? Nothing. Nothing. Right? And how many myriad things does she do for me during the day that I may or may not notice? So I thought, okay, I need to flip the script in my own brain. So when I get that glass out now, I, I get a second one. And I walk in the other room. I say, would you like a glass of water? Or maybe I just pour her a glass of water. Now that's a really small thing. It doesn't make me a marital hero. But it's a small adjustment. And I think for many of us, it's those small things that begin to add up over time, isn't it? We get so irritated because, you know, you begin to tell yourself this story. Well, how selfish for her to wait until that. She wasn't doing it on purpose. She just was thirsty. Right? And Paul says, husbands, love your wives as your own body. You're thirsty, get her a drink. Whatever you need to walk with Jesus Christ, provide for her as well. Okay, that's headship in the context that Paul 
talks about it. So let me uh, offer a few thoughts by way of application then for the husbands as well. I've got a few more for the men than the women this morning. First of all, similarly, pray for her. Pray for her, pray for her daily, weekly, throughout the day. Be praying. If there's something in her life that you want to change, pray for it a hundred times before you say a word. Pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. Secondly, stay engaged. Stay engaged. I was on campus this past week as part of a uh, religion panel where there were sort of representatives from different religions and we all were talking with students and kind of sharing this is what we believe. So I was a Christianity representative. But on the panel, there was also a rabbi. And somebody, one of the students said, how does your faith system uh, view women, right? So the different religious systems sort of talked about their beliefs view of women. And this rabbi told a story that really stuck in my head. He said, you know, this is often what happens in homes with husband and wife. And he said, there was a little boy and the little boy went to school. And then when he came home from school, he told his mom, he said, look, mom, we're having a a school play and I have a role. I've got a part. And she said, that's great, son. What part do you have in the play? And he said, I'm the dad. I'm the papa, the head of the family. And the mom was furious and she looked at her son and she said, son, you march back in there and you tell that teacher you want a speaking role. (laughs) It always takes a second for that to sink in. But see what he's getting at is that all too often that's the way it goes, isn't it? You're engaged at work, you're engaged with your friends, you're engaged with your hobbies and then you come home and you pull out the phone or you turn on the TV and you disengage. That's not what it looks like to love our wives as Christ loves the church. You stay active and engaged. You listen. Even as I put this one together, I was thinking about how 1 Peter talks about this. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Sometimes when I perform wedding ceremonies, I will tell the husbands only half jokingly, you need to keep a little notebook about your wife and you write down those things that are important to her, that matter to her, that she loves And refer to it often because you will forget. Listen to her needs, her fears, her desires. This is especially hard for me at times. I am not always a fantastic listener. And yet the only way to know how she needs to be loved as Christ loves the church is to pause and listen. Even if you think in the first 15 or 20 seconds, "I I know how to solve this. I can fix this. And we've talked about it 78 times in the last week. And if only she would do what I said, all of this would go away, right? That's often how we think. I think Paul would say, that's not loving your wife, right? Because often, all too often for me, my goal is to solve it and move it out of the way so I can go back to something else. Maybe, maybe a solution isn't what she wants right then. Maybe it is. The only way to know is to listen, right? So listen, encourage. Again, a hundred times before you criticize, encourage. All right, over the years, um, I've seen a couple of different approaches that husbands have toward their wives in public. One is a sort of sarcastic, cutting type of approach. Uh, Shannon and I were in a Bible study when we were a young couple, and there was a, a young man in there that when his wife would start to speak, the eyes would roll, right? And he would correct and he would interrupt. And here's what I found. I, I didn't lose respect for his wife. I felt sorry for her. I lost respect for him. 
You know why? Because I couldn't get this thought out of my mind. If she's so stupid that you have to roll your eyes, what does that say about you? Because you married her. Okay? That's what Paul means when he says, look, love your wife as your own body. No one ever hated his own body. If you cut and demean your wife in front of other people, all you're doing is cutting yourself up. Because as she flourishes, you flourish and the family flourishes and grows. Right? And so encourage a hundred times before you criticize and then lay down your rights day after day after day for her and for your family, right? Again, the, the point of marriage is not that I get all of my needs met, right? But instead that we reflect the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. And what you hopefully see in Ephesians 5 is this, this sort of interplay between husband and wife. And uh, regardless of what you think about the roles issue, this interplay where husband and wife both approach each day saying, how can I die to self for the sake of my spouse? How can I create an environment where this marriage and this family can flourish and grow in Jesus Christ? And every time those selfish desires begin to creep in, I pray and through the power of the Spirit, I say, I'm going to set aside my selfishness. Now, it doesn't mean there's never a time to talk about conflicts because there is. But we always approach them from the mindset of we're together in this. Right? Marriage is not a zero-sum game where I win and my spouse loses. Right? Instead, marriage is an opportunity for the two of us in Jesus Christ to win and then for the world to see the love of Jesus reflected in us. I know I'm past time, but a couple of quick, quick things. One, a couple of books I would recommend. One is Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. That concept of marriage is for our holiness and not our happiness weaves its way through the book. Very transformative. Also the book Love and Respect by Emerson Egerix, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, Excellent book that my wife and I have both read and benefited from. And the last thing I'd say is this. There may be uh, one or two in here that you hear this and you say, man, my marriage right now is so far from where it needs to be that all of this just feels like theoretical impossibilities. Right? You may be here on the verge of saying, I want to hit eject and call it quits. If that is you, let me exhort and let me even beg you, get some help. One of the pastors, I... I I can help you find the resources you need. We can talk with you. We can refer counselors. There are so many resources. There is no shame in seeking help. There is in being too proud to admit when we need it. So don't give up. Keep praying, keep pursuing, keep seeking. And if, if you're in that spot, we'd love to help you so that our marriages can reflect Christ's relationship with the church. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this time and the opportunity to study your word. I pray that above all, we would reflect the love of Jesus. I pray that we would recognize that even in his submission to the Father, Jesus did not submit from a place of weakness or inferiority, but a place of security and strength. And in his leadership, Jesus never was an overlord who grabbed his authority and forced other people to obey, but he was loving even to the point of laying down his life. I pray we would do the same. We thank you for this time and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.